0: Hello, I'm the Pink Phantom, and this is my podcast. Join me as I delve into the world of games and gaming, and especially old-school RPGs. Together, let's voyage into the astral realm and check out my Phantom Thoughts. In this episode, Jason from the Nerds RPG Variety Cast and Daniel from Bandit's Keep Podcast and Media Empire are talking traps. We also get a call in from Evil Jeff giving more information about the Baskless Hills Breakdown podcast. There will be links to all those podcasts in the show notes and, of course, more Tales of the Dragon Slayers. So let's get to it.
1: Hey, Jason here. Enjoyed your latest episode, Traps. So I don't consider myself a new school GM or an old school GM. You know, I enjoy games everywhere from crunchy, crunchy games to super loosey goosey games and collaborative where the players and the GM build everything together to the GM builds everything and the characters then just explore it. So I I don't put myself in any particular camps. But as far as traps go, I don't mind traps. I want them to be able to be solved by player initiative and investigation. I don't want it to just be a die roll and I don't want them to be too often. So fairly infrequent and something the players can investigate and figure out is probably my sweet spot. Not saying I'm very good at figuring them out, but th- that's the area I would like to, to see traps. And I guess the other part of that would be to have you know, telltale signs of those traps. Which I know sounds like holding the player's hands, but I think there need to be some, you know, telltale signs. So, and and I'm not thinking the right word right now because my brain's frozen. But there's a, but the idea that, you, you know, you have some indicators there might be a trap here. So the players aren't worried about is every scroll case they touch trapped, right? So, anyhow, keep up the great work. We'll talk to you soon.
2: Hey, Pink Phantom. This is Daniel from Bandits Keep calling in about the traps. So, yeah, I think that's really interesting, right? And really, like most things, I feel like, for me, moderation is key. There are times where I will want to play, this is as a player, a game where lassoing the trap box and opening from the bottom and doing all this is part of the game, right? Would I want to do that in every single room? Every single time we saw something, I think that if you're looking at the idea of, okay, this is a, let's say, I'm just going to throw it out there, (laughs) spitballing, let's say you've got a tomb that you're breaking into, you know that there's a great treasure at the bottom of it, it's a short dungeon, you're playing a three-hour session with your friends, you're basically, you know that this is a trap-filled dungeon, you've got information, you're there, and that's what it's about, right, or some kind of a heist, you just know that's what you're doing. In your general, like, everyday dungeon crawling, would I want to do that in every room? No, and I think what people ended up doing is they start having, like, a procedure, right? Like, we have an SOP, so that means that every time we come to the door, we listen. These two guys listen. This guy checks for traps on the thing. This guy burns a torch around here. This guy for rot grubs. You know, and then you kind of write this whole thing down. You give the GM and you say, every door we come to, we just want to do this because we don't want to spend five minutes explaining it to you every time. And at that point... Is it worth doing it, right? Because it's like, well, if you're just going to say they do it every single time, why even bother? And that is where the game comes in. What's fun for your table? So I think that we want to telegraph traps if we're going to have them in a location. Personally, I think that traps, I lean towards traps that are less deadly these days and more uh, loss of equipment or holding you up, which maybe falls somewhere in the trick uh, area a little bit too. Or just hold the player characters, right? They're trapped, the falling into a 20-foot pit and dying on poison spikes just doesn't suit my play way of playing these days. So for me, I think a decent amount of traps, maybe one or two in a large-sized dungeon in the right place set up t- to actually trap the characters or to hold them back makes a lot of sense. In a small dungeon that it's about an infiltration, that we know it's a death trap. Like let's say the beginning of uh, Raiders of the Lost Ark, right? You know you're going into this thing and there's only like five rooms there and you know every room is going to be full of traps. So you go to each door and you take the time and you role play it out and you say exactly what you're doing and you have this fun test of player skill. I think that's also fun. But I think both cases need to be telegraphed out. And I think what you don't want to do is have a situation where you don't have a lot of traps then all of a sudden – boom, out of the blue, there's a trap that just kills the whole party. I find that to be very unfun personally, both as a GM and as a player. So that's my take on traps. I'd love to hear what other people say. The other thing too I'll point out, which a lot of people don't know this or remember it or use it, is that in BX and also OD&D, I'm not sure about AD&D, traps actually only open or fire on a roll of a 1 or 2 or a D6. This I really like because I think that the modern thought of trap is and I mean, people playing these days, I talk to you, you walk down. you walk down a corridor, there's a trap on the floor, you fall into it, but the rules are not set up that way. And I think that's actually much more fun to play out because I like the idea that you can walk over a trap and have it not go off. It definitely builds tension and interest. And perhaps you find that trap on the way back or you use it to set it off for somebody else. It's just, it makes it much more interesting. I know. So as far as skill answering that part of your question I think rolling to see, find a trap is fine. I tend to in my OD&D game, if the dwarf is looking and it's a it's a construction trap, they'll pretty much find it. That's just how I do it. If nobody's looking, then on a one or a two, it'll open on somebody as they go over it. If everybody gets past without setting it off, I generally roll one extra one or two. And if that comes up, then I say on the last person, I say... You just realized you all just walked over some kind of trapdoor. <laughs> you know, I let them basically find it. That way they can use it. I think it puts it more fun in the game that way. I don't usually run games where the players need to be super precise as far as the lassoing. That's something I do enjoy as a player, though. So, <laughs> anybody wants to run me an adventure like that? I like playing that kind of heist game. But that's typically smaller parties and smaller adventures. So, that's been a long message, by the way. I've been really enjoying the dragon slayers and i am about to i stopped the recording so i could listen to that you were just about to start so cool i'm gonna jump into it
0: thanks to both of you for calling in jason i know exactly what you were talking about when you were talking about telltale signs it's the idea of having clues that show the trap is there things like there could be bones of someone who fell on on in the trap or on the trap themselves and were, were killed by it or there could be some kind of there could be torn fabric. There could be scraping on a floor or a wall showing where a mechanism is. Things of that nature. And I think that's very important just in general because that falls into the same category as things like mysteries and puzzles and even in the old school games where things aren't adjusted by level to what the player characters are, what kind of monsters are around. Because you don't want to catch them. You want to have some surprises, and that's really to me what the random, random encounter generation and stuff is for. Things that maybe even the GM doesn't know are coming or doesn't know it or doesn't know any more than except they're on a table they're going to end up rolling on. So there is some surprise there because you don't want it to get too formulaic. Especially when, as Daniel was just talking about, there's a standard procedure they use. They say, okay, we're using our standard door entering procedure. We're using our standard going down a quarter we think is trap procedure. Because if you go too far in the procedural direction, which a lot of people who like old school games talk about procedures, you end up with just just a formula. It's formulaic. We say we do this, you say you do this, we roll the dice, and okay, we move on. And that that removes a lot of interest from the game. But absolutely, there need to be some clues here and there give the players an opportunity to use their player skill to give themselves a better chance to survive in a game that is you know quite deadly at times and of course within the game those standard procedures SOPs that Daniel was talking about they can be offset a little bit you the players don't necessarily they don't necessarily have a win button so to speak if they develop these because there should be some kind of in-game trade-off. There's some kind of, you know, if nothing else, time. I've talked on a couple, a couple of episodes previously about how time is an asset within the game, and how old-school games were designed in a lot of ways, including traps, to take up the time that the player characters have because they're burning through torches, they're burning through daylight, they're burning through rations. They can't search extensively search every room and every corridor. They're going to end up missing some things, and those things could come back and bite them, and traps are a big part of that. And I love the way, Daniel, you talked about how you would like to maybe try playing in a trap-heavy type of game at some point because you know that, again, goes to something that we talk about a lot when talking about role-playing in general and old-school games in particular, what works at your table for your group, with your players, with your GM. So you're going to have parties and GMs that, like Jason, want traps, but just not very often, or like Daniel suggested, could be a bigger part of the game and might be something that they want to see more often where they have to develop these extensive procedures, where they have to figure out how to evade different types of traps. And I think it was spot on saying that traps shouldn't work all the time. I mean, these are, in many cases, old ruins. And even if they've been occupied by a new group, that new group may not necessarily maintain those traps, may not even go near the corridors and the rooms that they know have traps because they don't want to get hit by them either. So they go to more cleared out portions and live there. But it could also be a situation where a group has moved into an, an old castle or part of an old dungeon or an old cave system that had treasure in it. And not only are they maintaining the traps that are there, they've added more. And that would actually add a layer to it because then with a, with a little bit of work, you could have two different kinds of traps. And one traps are set up from, from the old way, they're a lot less reliable Things are breaking down because the people that are maintaining them don't fully understand them. They know how it, the effects, but they maybe not necessarily know the causes of exactly what makes traps so deadly. And then on the other hand, a different set of traps that's well-maintained and well-oiled and they will go off. It's just a matter of when and on who. So to wrap up this, this little response ramble here, uh, yes, traps are a good part of the game. Uh, if you want to do almost completely without traps, you can obviously, but they add a different kind of flavor. It's a different kind of approach to how to overcome them than confronting a monster with a sword in one hand and a shield in the other. And it's fascinating to see how they have waxed and waned and what their reputation is in terms of how they've been used in modules in the past and different supplements. I mean, obviously, Grimtooth's guides, traps are a famous book or series of books on traps i'm not sure exactly how many there are but traps are a a well-established part of the game and even if you don't use them often it's always fun to read up on them in different ways they have they have been used and you know read different stories recounts on things like blogs or or in podcasts that people have encountered different kinds of traps and how they have either overcome them or seen it lead to the demise of their party. So thank you guys for calling in. Phantom is Evil Jeff. Hey,
3: still going through your back catalog and got to episode thirty-seven, I believe it was, and you were talking about the Baskless Hills breakdown, of which I'm a player in, and wanted to thank you for shouting that out, but also point out that Kevin of the Red Caps podcast, he's in the game as well. Um they hadn't been in the last 2 for some reason I forget why. But uh anyway, he's a player as well. Um I will send you a uh URL because there's also on the Third Kingdom game three, yeah, Third Kingdom Games blog, uh he does several different write-ups and everything of the of OSR news. But also there's the actual plays uh, basically a recap that is written up by the players. Well, I shouldn't say that. It's written up by me because I'm the only one who's willing to do it. So if people also want to get a look at what's uh, being done, they can kind of get the condensed version and then listen to the actual plays. Anyway, I'm glad you're listening to it, and I'm catching up, finishing up your podcast soon. Great stuff. Later.
0: Evil Jeff, thank you for calling in again. Uh you've you've almost caught up to where I am in the current podcast regime. So that's very exciting. And it's very exciting that you've called in for a second time. Yeah, I did not realize that Kevin from the Red Caps podcast was part of that pod part of that Baskless Hills breakdown podcast. I probably did recognize his voice and didn't couldn't place it. And now that you say it, I think I can hear it, so to speak. Uh but, yeah, he, the Redcats podcast is a great podcast. He did some great work in October when he was talking to luminaries of the development of OSR types of games and how building retro clones and things like that and the things they were thinking about when they were doing that, the different steps they took, and, and how, how the concerns that they had in terms of how far they could stretch the OGL license from Hasbro slash Wizards of the Coast to build those retro clones, to be able to continue to play and develop the older styles and older rule sets of gaming. But thank you for bringing that to my attention, because that's a great thing to 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 hear, to know. Uh, I also w- would like to mention, I don't know if I've mentioned this in the podcast on the past, another person on that Baskless Hills Breakdown podcast is John from the Tale of the Manticore podcast, a solo RPG podcast that if you're not listening to it, you should be. Even if you don't necessarily like actual plays, it could be something that you like. The production that he puts into it and the way he mixes the action of the characters he they're following and the mechanics that he uses and the world that he's building and how he puts those things together with an old school sensibility where the dice rule is just very good and I I would I would suggest anybody that likes old school gaming at least give that podcast an opportunity for a few episodes. I think it will grow on you, and you really like it. And of course, Evil Jeff has a podcast, the Minions and Musings podcast, and he has some great stuff on there talking about an old school style of gaming and going doing overviews sometimes of different rule sets, and and talking with his minions from time to time, his children, as they play games. And getting their perspective on it. So, three good podcasts the Red Caps podcast, Tell the Manticore, Minions and Musings, and I'll put links to all those in the show notes. And Jeff, I have in fact read through some of the previous actual play parts of the Third Kingdom Games blog, also, will be a link in the show notes. And I really enjoyed that. I really like what you guys are doing. It's very different from any other kind of actual play I've heard. And hearing that that logistical style, that domain-oriented style of play is something that I think really belongs out there. And I think you know, it's been a part of the blog scene, the old school gaming movements, various movements for a long time. But a lot of times people just don't sit down and take time to read through blogs, especially if you catch it in the middle and you want to go back and and read some others going through the back stuff. So having a an actual play podcast that people can listen to on a commute or if they have a job where there's some dead spots and they can listen to a podcast at their job or just doing chores around the house. I found myself listening to a lot of podcasts do when I'm when I'm doing that. So thank you so much for. Being part of the group that's putting it out there, uh, thank you so much for doing the actual play write-ups. I know that's a thankless thing. That's something I'm trying to get into with this Tales of the Dragon Slayers. I'm doing try to try to move some of that into a blog as well, as well as here on the podcast. So thank you so much for bringing that up, and you know, thank you for continuing to listen and hope to hear from you more in the future. And now it's time once again more tales of the dragon slayers. The travel party returned in time for all to share a midday meal, and they, re- and they related to the others their experience with the giants. Katya and Cudgel then expressed their concern about food. Especially, said Katya, since we could have more bellies to fill. What are you talking about, asked Sir Gus. Had they come across new allies? Or maybe refugees? Katya held up the ring. This, she took a deep breath, "'is a ring of wishes.' "'It took a moment for the implication to hit Gus. "'Bernie and Sven,' he almost whispered. "'A look of concern crossed his face. "'Aren't wishes dangerous? "'Can we even do that? "'How many wishes?' "'Katya responded. "'They can be dangerous, but they can do it. "'I'm not sure how many. "'The knowledge imparted by the no-item magic, "'it's not perfect. "'It's not precise.' More than one wish is available for sure. When should we do it? Sir Gus looked around at the group. I think we should do it tomorrow, before a group sets out for the keeper town again, responded Edgar. That makes sense, replied Cudgel, staring at his own ring. Harl, Quinn, John, James, Jack, and Jim all nodded. Tomorrow then, Katya said, sliding on the ring as they all thoughtfully returned to their meal. Later, Edgar and Katya pulled Sergus aside. We need to talk about cudgel, Katya said. Something is wrong. What do you mean? He's become fixated on that ring he got it to keep, Edgar responded. How so? Katya glanced around. He has no interest in any other ways to get stronger. The magic bracers he found he just let Edgar have. He takes no interest in the spell books we found with that other mage and in the dragon's lair here. We had to practically fight him to make him keep the magic darts we found. Edgar added, In the idle moments, he's always rubbing it, staring into it. What kind of a ring is it? asked Gus. Edgar shook his head. Seems to change. Whatever he thinks sounds most powerful. Ring of wizards, ring of sorcery, ring of great power. Is he possessed? Katya paused. He still seems himself, but it's like he's smitten. A charm, maybe, said Edgar. In any case, stated Katya, he's never away from it or inattentive enough for me to check it. With a little more training, maybe I could figure it out. You think so, Gus asked. I'm not sure, Katya admitted. But since the dragon fight, I feel stronger, better. Perhaps we can find you... A uh, mentor of sorts, in town or at the fort. Your fighting skills seem better when you practice when we spar, Edgar suggested. Maybe, said Katya. That will take time. Till we move the rest of this, she trailed off. And, Sir Gus interjected, when we go into town, we probably need to at least form the garrison commander the dragon is dead. Do You think that's wise, Edgar asked. At this point I think it's necessary. The fort's been on a razor edge for two months now. Besides, if we move what we harvested from the dragon and the bulk of the gold before moving to town, and then the last of the gold after we get back, we can have everything but some silver and copper moved, even if words should spread. Plus, we can come back with another wagon. That makes sense, Edgar commented. And even if Katya stays to train, if Bernie and Sven are back, we could be in good shape. Then we should rest for tomorrow, said Katya that's right folks we got wishes the fate of the dice when rolling up the dragon horde put a ring of three wishes into the hands of our party so they have the opportunity to bring bernie and sven back from the dead so let's take a look at the wish spell in first edition AD&D. the wish spell is a more potent version of a limited wish if it is used to alter reality with respect to hit points sustained by a party To bring a dead character to life or to escape from a difficult situation by lifting the spellcaster and his or her party from one plane to another, it will not cause the magic user any disability. Other forms of wishes, however, will cause the spellcaster to be weak, minus three on strength, and require two to eight days of bed rest due to the stresses the wish places upon time, space, and his or her body. Regardless of what is wished for, the exact terminology of the wish spell is likely to be carried through. Of course, the discretionary power of the referee is necessary in order to maintain game balance, as wishing another character dead would be grossly unfair. For example, your DM might well advance the spellcaster to a future period where the object is no longer alive, i.e. putting the wishing character out of the campaign. So we're all familiar with the trope, and it's pretty well established, I think, in many forms of media that wishing can be as dangerous to you as it is to an object of your ire, if that's what you're using a wish for. So, you know, the idea is be very careful what what you wish for, be very careful how you wish for it. And it can always be twisted and turned against you as entities that give wishes. A lot of times are malevolent, i.e. genies. And of course it's encouraged right there for the DM to seek game balance, so that if the exact wording of a wish would grossly unbalance the situation or the campaign, you can give it a little twist as long as you literally make it come true. Now, in a regular campaign, this is basically the player being careful with how they word the wish and the DM taking it literally and, and establishing what that means within the campaign. If you are both player and DM, as in a solo campaign, how do you adjudicate that? Well, I, in my own manner, usual manner, have come up with a rather complicated way to do it. So here's what I'm going to do. Again, I'm going to default to the dice, because that's that's what we do, right? I come up with a process where what, I work through what does it mean to make a wish, and what what effects would hinder or help it being what the person desires as opposed to just literally doing something that maybe is not the end result they wanted. So I came up with the idea of this. The person making the wish has to understand the danger in poorly worded wishes. If they do, they must be capable of making the wish properly and formatting the wish to speak it the way they need it. They must overcome the fear of making a mistake, and they must make the wish flawlessly. And I translated each of those four things into essentially a ability score check, which in first edition AD&D is you're trying to roll under your ability score. So for the first, first thing understanding that the danger of a poorly worded wish, to me, that's a wisdom. That's a wisdom check. The second, being capable of wording the wish to be exactly what you want, that's an intelligence check. Being able to overcome your fear of making a mistake, that's a charisma check. And then the last check, initially I'd said, well, if you make the wish by speaking it, that would be dexterity. If you make it by thought, that would be intelligence. If you make it just by kind of willing it into existence, that would be constitution. But having just read the, the description of the spell, it has a verbal component. So wipe away those other two. It's a dexterity check. So I'm going to give each check an opportunity to give a bonus to the next check. So for example, if you succeed in your wisdom check, and I broke it down with, you'll get a plus two bonus to the next ability score, meaning it raises that next ability score up higher so you can get a higher result and still succeed. Because we're looking to roll high, but under the ability score. You get a plus two on a 15 or better. Because 15 in ad is roughly where bonuses start kicking in for a lot of your ability scores. Six to 14, you'll get a plus one bonus. And on one to five, where you're just... You're, you're easily making the check, but it's not, you know, you're not getting a great use of your full faculties. You've still succeeded on the check. Now, if you fail the check, in the case of the first check, the wisdom check, you're not going to make either of the next two, the intelligence and the charisma, give, which means basically it robs you of the chance of getting a bonus to work your way up to a bonus on the final roll. And then, of course, the final roll, executing it, If you failed the wisdom check, you just won't get a bonus. It's not going to give you a negative. But I also figured that the scope of a wish and the knowledge you have of what you're wishing for would also affect your ability to make an effective wish. So in the case of knowledge, and i tried to break it down into where you had three, essentially three segments of each. In terms of knowledge, it's if you're wishing it, if you're wishing something you know about very strongly, that's your best. Category one. Category two is if it's something you know a little bit about, and three is if it's something you don't really know anything about. Like if you made a wish trying to alter the physics of the universe, but you know nothing about physics. And then in terms of area of effect, if it's yourself, that's a category one. If it's for another person or a few people, Couple people or a few people, or limited area, that would be a category two, and a category three would be anything a much larger area. So in this case, I'd initially said that Katya who will be making the wish because she's a cleric. She has an understand a, a good understanding of life and death, and spirits or souls or whatever it is that you have in a magical realm. So that would be a category one. And that because it, she was she'd be wishing it for someone else, that would be a category two. So that I determined if you had a one and a two, the chart I worked up is if you have a, if you're at category one of each, you get a plus one bonus to that final to that final roll. If it's if you have a one and a two, you get no bonus, and then if you have two or better in each of them, then you're going to get a negative to to that last roll for that last roll but having read the wish spell again and seeing that wishing someone back to life is one of the less stressful wishes i'm going to say that's a category one both so you'll get a plus so she'll get a plus 1 in that final roll for making the wish that that last ability score check and again depending on how she Rolls that final check. On on a fail, it will succeed to a it will succeed literally succeed. They will come back to life, but there will be some kind of major complication. I'm leaning toward undead. Uh, if she succeeds, but it's a low roll, it'll have some side effects. I may very well pull from the side effects of. It may have an effect with the campaign later on where some, some entity or deity takes notice of this person coming back to life. Uh, on a middle level roll, that 6 to 14 range, on that last roll, there'll probably be some kind of minor complications. I may look at the, uh, the side effects from the artifacts, potential side effects from the artifacts, and implement one or more of those. And then finally, if she hits that 15-plus on the last roll while staying under her her score, then it'll be just a complete success. So having said all that, and if you followed all that, I'm going to go to the rolls. The first roll is a Wisdom check. Now, Katja's Wisdom score is a 17. So if she can roll a 17 or under, it will be a successful check. And with a 10, it's successful and gives a plus 1 bonus on the next roll. The next roll is the intelligence check, knowing how to properly formulate the wish. And on this, she has also a 17 intelligence with a plus 1 bonus, 18. So 18 or less on a d20. And she succeeds. And with a 12, she succeeds again. That gives her a plus 1 to her charisma check to overcome her fear of making the wish. She has an 18 charisma, so that gives her a 19. So unless she rolls a 20, she succeeds. And with a 2, she succeeds. But she gets no bonus from the check on the final roll. But she did still gets a plus 1 for the scope of the wish and her knowledge of the wish being both in that category 1. So she's going to get a plus 1. She's speaking it. It's a dexterity check. Her dexterity is only an 11. So she needs a 12 or less to successfully speak this wish. And with a 12, she gets it exactly. So there's going to be some kind of a minor complication to that wish. I'm going to roll a second dexterity check for the second wish. And with a 4, she succeeds, but it's going to it's going to have a major complication of some sort down the road. Now, road. Now, what will those complications be? I don't know. I'm going to leaf through the ad d guide, look at the side effects from the artifacts, and peruse maybe through a few magic items or stuff, especially some of the cursed item descriptions, to see if I get something, some ideas. And when I do, I'll let you know. But what we know for sure is Bernie and Sven are back. That's it for this episode of Phantom Thoughts. I love feedback. If you would like to comment, there's lots of different ways for you to do it. First, you can go to podcasters.spotify.com/pod/show/phantom-thoughts and leave a voice message, or you can send an email or attach a voice message to an email and send it to at gmail.com. You can call into my Google Voice line at eight six four. Two zero nine one four four one. You can send me a message on Speakpipe at www.speakpipe.com/slash/phantomthoughts. You can also contact me on Discord. I am the Pink Phantom, number nine seven eight two. So please let me hear from you. Thank you for listening, and have a good day. Links to contact information and topics covered in this podcast can be found in the show notes. The opening music for this episode was Strength of the Titans and the closing music is Late Night Radio both by Kevin McLeod at Incompetech.com licensed under Creative Commons by Attribution 4.0 license. Goodbye.